So it's great to see everybody here. Welcome to day 208 of the quarantine, uh, at least here at CLS. Um, gosh, it seems like day one. No. Um, so Rachel uh, LaBush and I are going to talk today about defending foreclosures in the COVID-19 era. Um, uh, we really would love to um, make this as participatory as possible. I know that's tricky uh, on Zoom, um, uh, but it's, you know, Rachel and I practice for the most part just in Philadelphia County, and there's a lot of things we're going to talk about today which are applicable across the Commonwealth, but we know that the experiences in Philadelphia County um, uh, may be different from uh, other counties as well. Um, our email address is are posted on the slide right now, um, but uh, we're also going to like be using the chat box today um, as well. So if you have any questions, don't wait till the end. Feel free to post them in the chat. When I'm talking, um, Rachel uh, will be sort of monitoring the chat box, and when Rachel's talking, I'll be monitoring the chat box. All right, we cool? Should we get started? So here's what we're going to try and talk about today. Uh, here, wait a second, does that work? There we go. Um, so we're gonna do an introduction. I'm gonna try to like frame sort of the, where we are, uh, we, um, uh, you know, how we got here, uh, and then um, talk about like what happens next, like what's, the, what's gonna happen in the next three months um, with mortgages and foreclosures. Um, uh, we're gonna talk about sort of forbearances. Um, we're gonna talk about what's gonna happen when forbearances end. And of course, then we're gonna spend some time talking about what's gonna happen um, if the predicted tsunami of new foreclosures happen um, in the first and second quarters of 2021 and what new defenses we might have to them. Um, hey, uh, is, is, is anyone, I mean, I imagine that, that it, Rachel and I are not the only people who are working from home with children. Um, uh, if you, can you put in the chat box if you can, like, is anyone like working from home and like have children? And if so, like, what are, what are their ages? I'm going to start. I've got, I'm, uh, I've, I work with a, uh, a, an 11 year old named Zora. Uh, Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Um, so, so earlier this week, I was putting this um, PowerPoint together. Uh, Wendy, your uh, your daughter should meet my daughter. Um, so I was I was uh, putting together this PowerPoint, and and my daughter comes into the room as well as my partner Susanna, and they're like, "Your PowerPoint looks really boring. You really need to spice it up." everyone's gonna get bored watching, uh, looking at that if uh, on Friday. And so they, um, they suggested a number of different um, uh, formats that would make it different other than the one that Rachel and I use all the time. Um, I, uh, <laughs> yes, I, uh, I sort of said no to most of the ones that had, you know, sparkles on it because we're talking about a very serious issue. Um, but I did agree to make it a little bit um, more interesting and agreed to a, um, uh, a shark theme. Um, so, uh, so this is, <laughs> please excuse the shark theme, but this is um, necessary to keep peace in, um, in my home. And hopefully it's a little more interesting for you guys. So, uh, so the introduction. So how did we get here? I think it's no secret, but I think it's important to mention that we got here because there's 170,000 people in, in, uh, with COVID in Pennsylvania and including over 8,000 deaths. 
Um, and uh, because of the uh, pandemic, over 2 million people are currently unemployed in Pennsylvania. Now, it's true that um, unemployed folks uh, are uh, disproportionately renters, but there are a lot of low-income folks who, um, uh, who were homeowners, who are homeowners, um, who are falling behind in their mortgage. Um, Nationwide, uh, there are over uh, 1 million homeowners who are behind in their mortgage, which is rivaling the numbers that we saw uh, 10 years ago um, uh, at the height of the, the last recession. Um, and last uh, uh, home ownership um, uh, crisis. Um, and importantly, that includes a, uh, about 680,000 with federally backed mortgages. Um, Rachel and I are gonna talk a little bit later about sort of the differences between federally backed mortgages and, um, and why, uh, why that's important to make that distinction. Um, but for, for purposes of right now, like that 680,000, um, those folks are behind in their mortgages and there's a program that uh, helps them um, not uh, uh, avoid foreclosure. They can put, uh, avoid paying their mortgages um, for many months, for up to 12 months, um, if they were to enroll, but they're currently not enrolled. Um, and uh, I think it's also important to note that the Black and Latinx homeowners uh, are being hit a lot harder than white homeowners are um, during the, the current uh, crisis. Um, prior to COVID-19, 74% um, of white home uh, households owned their home, while only 44% of Black households and 49% of Latinx households uh, were homeowners. So there already was this homeownership gap um, that uh, sort of leads to the, the racial wealth gap that we see across the country. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it appears that this uh, crisis is only going to make this gap worse. Um, as the pandemic began, 12% uh, of white homeowners with mortgages reported missing their payments, um, but twice as, uh, the, the twice that rate, 23% of black homeowners and 31% of Latinx homeowners missed their payments. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are forbearance programs that are available for folks uh, to enroll to um, that could help them prevent foreclosures from being filed later on, but we're also seeing that 66 or two thirds of white homeowners who are falling behind in their mortgages are enrolled in forbearance programs, but only 17% of black homeowners and 26% of Latinx homeowners um, have enrolled. Uh, if these trends continue, what we'll see um, is uh, foreclosures being filed um, you know, within the next six months. Um, and, and once again, disproportionately affecting black and Latinx homeowners um, and further worsening um, the homeownership gap and the racial wealth gap that plagues our country. Um, so in short, Many homeowners previously, uh, um, who are previously low income, the clients that we represent, are now unemployed um, because of COVID. Too many homeowners are behind in their mortgages but not enrolled in forbearance programs. And uh, the uh, homeowners who are falling behind in their mortgages and are not enrolling in forbearance programs um, are disproportionately Black and Latinx households. I'm gonna pause for a second. And um, any questions or comments? Um, before we move on. All right. Um, cool. All right. So the big question that a lot of us have are, 
why aren't some homeowners enrolling in forbearances? Um, uh, there's a couple of reasons that we've that we've on, that we sort of have uh, theorized and that we've seen from our clients' experiences. And I think the first one is it's true that there um, that thirty percent of homeowners whose mortgages are not federally insured are thus not covered by CARES Act forbearances. They may, uh, their mortgage servicers may offer them other types of forbearances or other types of, of programs, but uh, they're not required to under um, the, type, the forbearances that Rachel's gonna talk about in a second. Um, and maybe it's just important just to pause for a second. When I say federally backed or federally insured mortgages, what we mean by that are mortgages that are uh, FHA insured, mortgages um, uh, that are owned or insured or securitized by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Those are the, mo those are the big ones. And then there are other mortgages that are um, uh, VA, uh, VA mortgages, the Veterans Administration mortgages, and uh, the USDA uh, Rural Housing Service, RHS. Um, there's a VA and, and, R, and R, uh, RHS mortgages as well, S much smaller than the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and FHA insured. But those are when we talk about um, federally insured mortgages, that's what we're talking about. Uh, nationwide, um, uh, that's seventy percent of the mortgages. Thirty percent are not uh, are not federally backed, and so they're not covered by the CARES Act forbearances. Um, but even among people who are eligible for federally uh, for for forbearances because their mortgages are federally backed. As I mentioned a couple of slides ago, ago, there's a huge number of those folks that are not enrolled in forbearances either, even though they're falling behind in their mortgages. Why? They either don't know about them, and this is important to note. Um, CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they actually, and back in April. Um, issued guidance to all of the regu their regulated entities and said, even though federal law requires that servicers of federally backed mortgages reach out to their homeowners um, 30, I think 36 days after delinquency um, and say, are you aware of loss mitigation programs such as forbearances? And even though federal law says that 45 days after a delinquency, they're required to provide a written communication um, reminding them about loss mitigation opportunities. Um, CFPB says in their April guidance that we're going to have flexibility and um, and we're not we're going to you know essentially go easy on you um, uh, with your compliance with these requirements. Um, this is super infuriating um, for a lot of us because this is especially the time when the CFPB uh, should be um, uh, uh, regulating these um, uh, these mortgage servicers to make sure that they comply with these federal requirements. Um, to make sure that their homeowners who are delinquent know about their options. Um, uh, but the CFPB has, has stood down. Um, uh, some people may have seen some chatter around that um, uh, my colleague Carrie Smith and I uh, did reach out and had some conversations with the Pennsylvania Department of Banking and Securities to see if they would step up and fill the gap and that they would um, uh, require that their non-bank uh, mortgage servicers, you know, such as like 
Quicken Loans and Freedom Mortgage and you know Bayview slash Community Loan Services servicing um, all all the non-depository institutions that the Department of Banking regulates. We asked the Department of Banking and Securities to reach out to them, and they have not not yet agreed to do so because they don't see this as a significant problem. Um, uh, and then the other thing is that, um, uh, so not only don't people know about the, their the ability to, to apply for and qualify for a forbearance program, but some people are actually receiving incorrect information, incorrect information on the websites um, about qualifying for forbearance programs um, and incorrect information about what happens after the forbearance ends. Um, I'd like to pause for a second um, and turn to the chat uh, box. Um, have, has anybody uh, working with any homeowners who have received either incorrect information um, or no information? And what I include in that, to be perfectly honest, is people who contact you as a legal or your office and say, I'm falling behind my mortgage and I don't know what to do. And you're the one that tells them that there's a forbearance um, because we as advocates should never be in a position where we're the people who are telling people um, that they, about the availability of forbearance programs because if they're 36 days late, they should have already received information from their mortgage servicer um, about the, the, uh, the loss mitigation opportunities that were available. Uh, all right. Um, Um, by the way, if people want to also, uh, you know, uh, would prefer to speak out, um, I know there's a, lots of folks here who are not shy about uh, speaking. Um, uh, feel free to just sort of unmute yourself as well and interrupt us. That's, that's uh, perfectly cool. All right. Um, uh, Rachel, do you want to ha talk about uh, what happens? Sorry, there's a bit of a lag here. Uh, there we go, bit of a lag. Um, Rachel, do you wanna talk about uh, what happens next? Um, I'll turn it over to you. Sure. Um, thank you, Michael. Okay, thanks also for advancing it. So when, when Michael picked the, um, this theme, he did not know that I have an irrational fear of sharks. Um, <laughs> so this whole presentation is like exposure therapy. <laughs> I don't like to linger on like the great white shark. Rachel, you would be you would be so surprised, or maybe you're not surprised, at how many pictures of if you just like Google like pictures of sharks, there's like thousands to choose from, uh, as you'll see in a moment more. Okay, <laughs> so um, so we tease by offering to cover what happens next, but then uh, we immediately turn to what's already happened because it's important to know um, the stages of 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 what's gone on already in this pandemic and what protected people in order to um, understand what may happen next in the next few months. So as most of you probably know, in early May, Governor Wolf put in place a statewide moratorium on foreclosures and evictions. And this was kind of timed to start up right as the, um, the one that was put in place by the courts, the statewide um, courts was ending. And he did it through a mechanism of it was it applied to foreclosures and um, evictions for renters and he did it through executive order by um, using the pre foreclosure and pre eviction notices. Um, which are required in the state so. Um, it, the original one went through July 10th and then Governor Wolf extended it on July 9th through the end of August. 
And I just, we included the language here. Um, we're going to be making these materials available to all of you and there will be hyperlinks to everything uh, referencing here, including the orders. Um, but it's got a nice strong, uh, nice strong statement. All foreclosures requiring compliance with Act 6 and Act 91 cannot commence until August 31st, 2020. So nobody should have seen residential foreclosures basically um, in Pennsylvania that were filed over the summer. Um, and the lenders were not supposed to be sending pre-foreclosure notices either during that time period. Um, but now we're past, the, <laughs> this order has expired. Um, it expired at the end of August 31st. And there's, I don't want to get too lost in the details, but um, it's possible that some, Basically, the order said if a notice was sent before um, early May, before this order went into effect, that it would be deemed delivered at the end of this moratorium, um, August 31st. We have a different interpretation than the Department of Banking. The Department of Banking did put out an FAQ, um, which you can look at, and it's good to know what, what they say. But um, basically, our position is the 33-day period um, for any any loan where a notice was sent out before the moratorium really begins ticking on August 31st. So no foreclosures should be filed before October 2nd. Um, it's possible that a lender would take a different position and consider that the 30 days or 33 days could have run out before May 7th or that part of it ran before the moratorium and part of it ran after. I'm curious, has anybody seen residential foreclosures filed in your area um, between August 31st and October 2nd? If you have, can you put it in the chat and say where you've seen it? Okay, and, and Michael will let me know <laughs> if you see anything there. All right. Um, but we can, we can move on. All right. So even though Governor Wolf's moratorium has expired, there's still a moratorium in effect for the almost two thirds of mortgages or about two thirds of mortgages that are federally backed. Um, and that's again, the FHA, VA, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and um, USDA mortgages. The CARES Act, um, which, was, which was passed in March, originally um, put forth a 60 day moratorium beginning March 18th for all federally backed loans. Um, and we included the language here, if you have to cite it, um, that moratorium applies to any, um, any federally backed mortgage, except for those that were vacant or abandoned. So even a second home or, or rental property would be covered by um, this moratorium. And it applied to not just starting a foreclosure, but any step along the way. So um, for federally backed loans, the lender, and this is still in effect, shouldn't start the foreclosure, shouldn't move for judgment, which would include filing a summary judgment motion or, or taking a default judgment, shouldn't be scheduling a sale, certainly shouldn't be taking a home through a sale. And then I interpret the execute a foreclosure related eviction to cover the situation where maybe a property previously went through sheriff sale um, even before this moratorium went in effect. But if the lender bought it at the sale, um, they shouldn't be going ahead with a, a, um, an ejectment on that property either. So we can, yeah. Um, 
even though the original moratorium was only supposed to be for 60 days, all the federally backed, um, all the agencies and entities that backed the federally backed loans um, extended it a couple of times. And these are the latest extensions that make it clear that the moratorium goes through the end of December. So um, for each agency they do it or entity, they do it through a different mechanism, but there is guidance for each one. It's pretty detailed. And honestly, you do have to sometimes cite to these, um, cite to this guidance because the lenders and their counsel aren't necessarily following it closely. Um, so it's worth, it's worth having that. And these, you'll, you'll get this as well. Now's a good time to just jump in and mention, um, we'll, we'll uh, post this, uh, this uh, PowerPoint for everybody. And so you have access to it and you have access to the hyperlinks and all that. If people are not on the, um, uh, the plan HC, uh, Homeownership and Consumer Rights Listserv, um, please join and I'll send it around to plan HCR um, on Monday. Sorry, Rachel. No, that's good. Um, this chart, this is something that Michael put together um, to kind of to get the overview and quickly be able to figure out what moratorium or moratorium, what, what moratorium may be in effect for any particular loan. Um, and this is a good time to consider what is going on with the non-federally backed mortgages, that 30-ish percent of loans that aren't covered by any of those, um, that aren't Fannie Mae, Freddie, FHA, VA. A lot of these loans are... Um, are, I think of as the bad loans. Um, it's, if, if people still have those pre-crash loans, a lot of the um, crummy subprime loans are in this category. There's a few others as well, but they're kind of like the private label securities and, and just a, a hodgepodge of, of relatively crummy loans. Um, those are not subject to statewide moratorium. They're not subject to a national moratorium. The only thing protecting those people at this point would be if um, if those borrowers are in a forbearance, there shouldn't be any foreclosure activity because of the um, dual tracking prohibition against moving forward <laughs> with, a, with a foreclosure if a person's performing on a um, on a loss mitigation option and um, and then a court imposed moratorium so those will be um, I assume those are going to look different around the state. Um, and in Philadelphia, or actually I may get to this. <laughs> oh yeah. In Philadelphia, we, um, we aren't really seeing owner occupied foreclosures much being filed and they certainly can't move forward because we have our conciliation program that's been on hold since the beginning of the pandemic. And the court has not even, um, rescheduled any of those conferences or given out real, uh, dates for new, conferences. So, um, so we're not really seeing foreclosure, new foreclosures being filed here. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know there are people on this call who may know better yeah. than me about that. Um, and then for foreclosures that were already filed, the court's really been encouraging um, lenders and their counsel to put any of the government-backed mortgages um, into, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the word, suspense, basically, right? Because they shouldn't be moving forward with those. Um, and we haven't had any sheriff sales here in Philadelphia since the beginning of the pandemic. And our October and November sales have also been postponed. So at this point, the December 1st sale is the earliest possible date. And we still don't know what is going to happen with that, um, that a home could be sold. But I know that you are all seeing different things around the state. So um, 
Am I good? Do you want to do it now? Yeah, I'd later? be curious. Could could mm -hmm. um if is anyone on the call where sheriff sales for uh, residential owner occupied mortgage foreclosure sheriff sales for residential owner occupied properties have resumed? Be curious just to hear like what that looks like. Uh, how is it being done online? Is it being done in person? How are they, if they're doing it in person, how are they doing it in person? Yeah. Brand, Brandon, has Bedford started um, up mortgage sales? And you can unmute yourself if you'd prefer just to, to talk. I am not sure about mortgage sales at this point. I just know I have a client I'm helping with a tax sale matter. They started them up in September again. Uh-huh. All right. Um, uh, let's see. Should we go on to the next? Let, let's talk about. Um, oh, Eileen. Oh, I, Eileen. Can have they started? Have they uh, held any virtual sales yet, or they've just scheduled them? Uh, looks. I, I just looked on their website because yeah. I don't know from the experience, but they looks like they've had them and they're they're scheduling them virtually. Um, what month are they going to, is the first one. Uh -huh. I mean, one thing that we've talked about, nothing has been really set in Philadelphia, but would be, of course, starting if they, when they do restart sheriff sales would be starting with uh, vacant properties or properties that are clearly not, you know, owner occupied. And I was wondering whether other, um, other counties have seen anything like that. Uh, Trevor, have you do you, have you been to any of them, or do you know anything about them? Um, uh, how is it playing out? Yeah, it it is interesting. Like how um, you know, I, I I was on a call earlier. I think there's like over two thousand uh, residential um, homes that are sort of are scheduled for sheriff sale here in Philadelphia. Obviously they can't go ahead with all 2000. Well, maybe not obviously, but it seems unlikely that they would be able to, to do that. Um, uh, yeah, as, as Trevor mentions in the chat, um, most lenders keep continuing foreclosure sales of residential properties. And I think that's what we're, got, we've, what we're doing here um, with the first sales scheduled in December. But as Rachel mentioned, the first, tranche of them are going to be um, vacant and abandoned. Um, all right, well, let's, um, let's move on um, and talk a little bit about forbearances. I think, you know, when we talk about our clients now, like what is the, what is the most important thing that they can do if they're falling behind in their mortgage um, uh, because of a loss of income due to COVID or to do for, every, for any reason, I think it, the answer is to enroll people in, um, help people enroll into forbearance programs. Um, uh, forbearance programs, um, as we've mentioned a few times, um, it was uh, established by the CARES Act. Here's the site um, for where they, they talk about it. And importantly, the eligibility for a forbearance um, is, is very broad. Um, I think as we think about it as advocates, the default should be, is somebody behind in their mortgage right now? Do they have a federally backed mortgage? then they're eligible for forbearance. 
Um, they are not required to provide any documentation that they're experiencing a financial hardship um, due either directly or indirectly to COVID. Um, uh, we've heard some stories about uh, people being uh, required to provide documentation, um, but at least uh, most of the clients that I've talked to um, have, if they if they call their servicer, are being offered a forbearance with no additional with no written documentation, um, just by them saying that uh, they have a financial hardship. Um, and in fact, uh, that is uh, that's what the the federal the CARES Act requires of them. Um, important. It's uh, forbearances are, uh, should be extended to people regardless of their delinquency status. So, if somebody is, um, you know, uh, has been delinquent since 2017 um, and they're still in the foreclosure, and uh, then they should be given a forbearance. Although I guess they'd be covered by the moratorium because probably a foreclosure has been filed against them. Um, but it, uh, they shouldn't. There's no particular sort of time frame in which their delinquency must have have started. Um, the forbearances are, uh, are good for up to 12 months, or as the CARES Act says here, um, that they're supposed to be granted for an initial 180 days and then can be extended for an additional 180 days at the request of the borrower. Um, uh, I don't know whether, is, uh, Rachel, have, are you working with anybody who's has come up on the end of their 180 day for a federally backed mortgage? Um, not the 180 days, but, but yeah. the lenders can offer the forbearance in a shorter increment if the person right. doesn't explicitly ask for six months. So I have seen ones where they were given like three months, two or three months initially, and they had to request an extension already. Mm -hmm. um, there, uh, there's still an open question about, is there a deadline to request the COVID forbearance? Um, in guidance, in currently existing guidance from HUD, it says that the forbearances are required to be uh, requested or to be specific about it, that the servicers uh, have to who request the, for, um, the forbearance from HUD by October 30th. Um, so uh, if this doesn't change, then um, we might have a situation where people who are newly unemployed or who have now run through their savings um, will not be able to be uh, to ask for a forbearance after uh, October 30th. Um, this, um, uh, I, I, I've uh, been exchanging emails with some folks from NCLC uh, this week, and uh, they are hopeful um, that uh, HUD will extend this deadline, um, but it is something to be on the lookout for. Um, uh, it would seem silly not to extend it beyond October 30th, but we've seen a number of silly things happening um, on the federal government. Um, so yeah, let's, well, we, should, we should keep an eye on, on this. So Michael, Eileen has a question. Um, were borrowers required to be current in their mortgages pre-March to be eligible for forbearance? That's a great question because they I've seen lenders getting this wrong. They were not required to be current in their mortgages pre-March to be eligible for forbearance. And so in the CARES Act, when it says regardless of delinquency, they mean no matter how long that delinquency is or when it started. Um, and then the individual entities, including HUD, have put in their guidance explicitly, regard, like repeated that, um, regardless of delinquency status. So it's in the mortgagee letter, it's in the um, FAQ as well that HUD put out. 
but if you don't mind, Michael, I want to yeah. include the example. Yes. So I was dealing with ShellPoint for a client with an FHA mortgage um, who requested a forbearance and ShellPoint said no. And I called them and I said, why did you say no? They said, because the um, delinquency is longer than 12 months. And I, I cited this back to them and the person said, I'll check with a supervisor. I don't know why I thought I would get a real answer on the phone. I never get anywhere on the phone with a servicer, but the supervisor confirmed the policy was not, you know, yeah, oh, 12 months is the limit. And that was clearly wrong. So I had to take it to the um, HUD National Servicing Center where the woman in charge of um, dealing with servicers who get this issue wrong told me, yeah, you could be five years behind in your mortgage and you're still entitled to forbearance and she straightened it out. But um, it's a good thing to to keep in mind that servicers are getting this wrong, but it's it's clear that you did not have to be current in March. Yeah. Um, has anybody else worked with uh, any homeowners who have been denied a forbearance? Um, if so, we'd be very interested in hearing um, what your experiences, what your clients' experiences are. Um, so up until now, we've been talking about forbearances for federally backed mortgages. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, non-government backed loans. Um, uh, as Rachel mentioned uh, a little bit ago, forbearances are not uh, mandated, but uh, in our experience, um, uh, mortgage servicers are offering some type of forbearance to, to uh, homeowners, uh, e even if they don't have uh, f federally backed mortgages. Um, it, uh, it may not be 180 days, initial 180 days may not you know, last uh, 12 months, but they are working with them. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Rachel, do you have, is there anything else to say on this? Um, just that I was maybe pleasantly surprised to see in some of the data that I think was it, I'm forgetting now, Black Knight or whoever put out mm -hmm. that Black Knight. that even more, even a higher percentage of non-government back loans were in some kind of forbearance at this point. Um, so it does look like they are offering them, but, but it's, Good to keep an eye out because some of them can be offered in very short increments, even like one of my clients month to month by month, it has to be re-requested. Um, uh, Rachel Beth just posted in the chat about clients that have been told they must choose forbearance or being reviewed for loss mitigation. Uh, no, you can be in forbearance and be reviewed for loss mitigation at the same time. Who, um, Beth, who, who said that? Did you remember what servicer it was? While we wait, Michael and Rachel, this is Kelly. If I can just interrupt to launch the first of the CLE poll boxes, attorneys, please respond. You'll have a minute and a half to do so, and you'll need to respond to both this one and the second one that will be coming up later on. Thank you. Mike, it was one of the reverse mortgage um, services. Oh, interesting. Can you say can you say a little more about like what happened in that situation? I'm trying to remember. It's a woman who um, had all the criteria for being a non-borrowing spouse and the OE, and um, they had agreed to forbear. And when I asked for her to be reviewed during the forbearance, they said it was either or. Um, that. It, sorry, I'm getting feedback. Um, all of the guidance I've seen is explicit that there's, people are supposed to be reviewed 
for loss mitigation before the forbearance is over so that they're supposed to be seamless. I don't know um, about being re requesting a loss mitigation review like right at the beginning of a forbearance, but um, but my understanding is they're not supposed to be preventing anybody <laughs> from paying um, who's in a forbearance. So even for people with non-reverse mortgages, like a forward mortgage, um, if you have a forbearance and if a client has a forbearance and for some reason is able to resume making payments shortly thereafter, there's, they're completely entitled to make payments during the forbearance. So I think the same logic should apply, <laughs> but I think that in practice, it's possible that the review, they're not going to do the review for both at the same time. I don't think anyone should be told like what Trevor says here, that a borrower had to leave the forbearance to apply for loss mit. I, because they're not supposed to be have to be unprotected in order to access the loss mitigation. It's really supposed to be seamless to go from the forbearance to the permanent um, loss mitigation. Yeah. And there's specific guidance on that for the government backed loans. I wanted to mention there's good stuff on the um, HUD and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac websites about the timing where they're supposed to be reviewed during the forbearance period. Um, Eileen, we're going to get to your question about what's going to happen at the end of the forbearance in just a second. Uh, we've got a, we have a slide on, on that. Um, great. Um, yeah, and to, to Trevor's point again, you know, there are, I, I've, I've seen the data, a, high, a surprisingly high percentage of people enroll in forbearances, um, but then either make full or partial payments during their forbearance. Um, you know, uh, they sort of like pre preemptively or prophylactically enroll in a forbearance program. So just because you're in a forbearance doesn't mean that you, you know, the mortgage company is going to stop taking your payments. Um, I would, uh, I'd be interested, Trevor, in, in talking with clients that you have that have conventional mortgages or forward mortgages, not conventional, forward mortgages, um, who are being told this by uh, their servicer. That doesn't sound, that just doesn't, doesn't sound right. This, this might also be a good time to mention that Wells Fargo has gotten in trouble for giving people forbearances who didn't even ask for them, apparently. So that may be, it's possible. I, I've definitely seen clients who don't know if they have a forbearance or not. Sometimes it's, it's harder to tell than it should be. Yeah. Um, well, now's a good time to talk about um, PMAP. Um, because it, it transitions well from forbearances. So we've been saying that, you know, the most important thing that we can do to help our clients right now who are delinquent in their mortgages is to help them enroll in forbearance programs. Um, uh, up until about two or three weeks ago, if you were in a forbearance, you did not qualify for PMAP. The um, PHFA um, uh, has correctly uh, revised their guidance to say that if you are enrolled in a forbearance program, you are eligible for PMAP. Um, uh, I'll spare everybody the, the details about how that came to be. Um, so a moment about what Pandemic Mortgage Assistance Program or PMAP is all about. Um, PMAP provides up to $1,000 per month for uh, up to six months to pay, it's a grant program to pay uh, people's mortgages. Um, you have to be delinquent. In other words, you, you couldn't have actually paid the mortgage, um, but, uh, you, um, but you can be enrolled in a forbearance program. Um, 
you can apply online at, if you just go to phfa.org, the specific site is there. Um, and it's, uh, you have to have experienced um, a, a drop in income due to, due to COVID. Um, there's a few more uh, eligibility rules that you'll see um, at P on, on the PMAP website, but this is, this is sort of like the bigger picture issue. The point that I think Rachel and I want to drive home is that um, PMAP is uh, very underutilized at the moment. Um, and it was supposed to have ended at the end of September. Um, the governor, uh, through using um, his emergency powers, extended it through November 4th. But people should um, apply for, uh, we, should, we should help our clients of being applying for PMAP, um, uh, even if they're in forbearance programs, because it's a grant. Um, the latest numbers, uh, so, so PMAP was appropriated $25 million, which would um, cover maybe $4,000 grants of $6,000. Of the $25 million that have been um, uh, appropriated, um, they have only received uh, $2,700. 2700 applications seeking a total of 11 million they've approved 972 for just under 4 million so there's plenty of money there to for and there, um and there's there's to approve um you know more than twice well twice as many um applications as they've received um and we should be uh, urge, uh, uh helping our clients apply for uh, who, who have uh, fallen behind on their mortgage because of covid um apply uh as um apply period um there is this question oh rachel oh i just wanted to mention eileen asked about any money for good old-fashioned hemap and i said we are going to get to that in a minute but the pmap money is federal money right right so we definitely want to use that up if we can. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's this question that's been coming about, about what if you were delinquent before March of 2020? Um, uh, there is nothing in the PMAP statute that precludes uh, um, uh, PMAP money being uh, going to, to help somebody uh, whose arrears stretch before March of 2020. The problem here is that the servicer would have to agree to accept that money. And in most cases, most of our clients' cases, that would mean accepting less than the full amount necessary to cure the arrears. Um, so that's where things are going to get tricky, where somebody is going to be, you know, in this situation would be approved for PMAP, but then their servicer would say, no, we're not accepting less than the full amount. And that person has been delinquent, you know, going back to last fall. Um, uh, and so therefore we're not going to accept this partial payment. Um, you can imagine a situation where somebody can, um, uh, where somebody can come up with the money um, from third party sources uh, or from their own savings to uh, add to the PMAP grant to fully cure the arrears. Um, uh, but it's unlikely to be our clients who are, have usually um, spent down all their savings already. Um, uh, Rachel Gallegos uh, posts in the, the chat um, that PMAP is, or PHFA is taking the position that if you were delinquent pre-March 2020, you're not eligible for PMAP. Um, 
so so Rachel Gallegos is correct that we would need to escalate this. And the, the, the issue that we keep coming up against is if your servicer says we won't accept it, is there any way to either convince the servicer that they ought to accept it or somehow come up with um, additional funds that would, um, that would supplement the PMAP money to fully cure the arrears? Uh, and so far, we haven't had any success with that. But, but to be clear, from a legal perspective, there's nothing in the PMAP statute which um, precludes PMAP from being grant, uh, approved for people who were delinquent before March of 2020. Is there any questions about that? Okay. Um, I want to be, next we're going to talk about what happens when forbearances end, but I think now's a good time to put something in the chat. Um, uh, Michelle Bricks, who's a, a really stellar, I don't think she's on the chat. I don't think she's here this morning, but she's a, a paralegal with us at CLS. Um, uh, she um, uh, put together um, a, a, a sort of a, a guide for housing counselors here in Philadelphia, for housing counselors to, you know, at, because we're, our foreclosure process is essentially, you know, on hold, the guide that Michelle wrote is for housing counselors to go through um, all of the, the homeowners that they continue to be working with and sort of like evaluate where they're going next. Should they be in deferred status? Be should, should they apply for loss mitigation um, to cure their arrears? Should they be in a forbearance? Should they um, consider HEMAP? Should they consider PMAP? Um, uh, and folks might find it useful as a guide, sort of like a guide to go through all the different options for homeowners who have pending foreclosures. Um, and you can find it in that, at the, the link that I just posted in the chat. Um, if anyone has any questions about it, you can ask Rachel LaBush and I, or you can um, email the author, Michelle Bricks. Uh, hopefully she'll forgive me for giving out her information. Um, all right, so uh, Eileen um, a moment ago asked a very good question about what happens when forbearances end because it's all fine and good, right, to have your um, mortgage payments be um, put on hold, but if the mortgage company is just going to ask you to repay it in a lump sum at the end of the forbearance, um, then number one, that would dissuade homeowners from um, uh, from, from enrolling in forbearances, but number two, it's just kicking the can down the road. Um, early on, there was incorrect information which was circulating um, that homeowners, that the only option for homeowners was that they would need to repay uh, all of the, the mortgage payments all at once when the forbearance ends. This was wrong, um, but homeowners still got this message and unfortunately it still carried forward a little bit. Um, the correct information and the information which, um, uh, which, which homeowners should be receiving is at the end of the forbearance, um, homeowners can do one of three things. Number one, put a balloon payment at the end of their loan, non-interest bearing balloon payment at the end of their loan. Um, uh, number two, enter into a repayment plan with their mortgage servicer to repay the forbear, forborn, forbeared amount over for example, 12 months, in addition to making their regular monthly payments going forward, or 
maybe this will be true for some, some of our clients, repay the amount all at once. Um, and Mike, I just wanted to mention here, um, this to Eileen's other point about what about people who were delinquent before March 1st, this is the point at which it's gonna make a difference um, potentially for clients who were delinquent earlier because for some of the lenders, um, for FHA and um, Fannie and Freddie, that putting everything to the back of the loan is gonna be available to people who were not delinquent in Mar before March. But for people who were already delinquent, they're going to be more likely to get their rears wrapped into a, a loan modification than, than one of these solutions. Yeah. Yep. Um, great. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting. I, I copied it from directly from their website that uh, Bayview, um, a, a non-bank mortgage servicer, which last week changed their name to Community Loan Servicing. Um, they, this is the message which is on their, uh, their website, which credit where credit is due, I think it's pretty good. It says, for residential mortgage customers who are financially impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, Community Loan Servicing offers a forbearance plan that temporarily pauses mortgage payments for an initial period of up to 180 days. Upon request, an additional 180 days are available for a maximum forbearance period of 360 days. I think that's the exact right message um, to be going out to homeowners. It doesn't, it doesn't say um, you know, what financially impacted means. It just says, you know, if you've been financially impacted, doesn't require documentation. It says you can get the additional 180 days upon request. Um, and then it goes on. It says, next paragraph, for all customers on a forbearance plan, at the end of the forbearance plan, there are repayment options available to you. And in bold, it says, no one will be required to immediately make up the paused payments all at once or in a lump sum. Um, uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, and I'm no fan of Bayview who has now stolen CLS's name. Right. And Eileen had another question in the chat too. Uh, will the post forbearance loan modification offers be required to be affordable? So many of the loan mods have not been feasible to our clients. Um, did you want to get, take this one or who you have? Uh, do you want I mean, if, if your loan mod is, is an FHA HAMP, then there's sort of, there's, there's formulas that require them to be affordable. If they're Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, there's also formulas, which flex set mod. the yeah, flex mod that requires that the loans, the amount be affordable. Are you, Eileen, do, are, do you have in mind a particular situation? Was it a non-federally backed mortgage where somebody was offered a loan modification that was not affordable? I don't remember which. I've seen this several times, though. Our clients are, are being told that some of them even being, now this is pre-COVID, but yeah. you know, they're being told, oh, you have to pay even more than what the monthly mortgage payment. That's, Eileen, that's a good point um, that I'm going to get to in a little bit, too, that so many of our clients have already had loan modifications and have relatively low interest rates. It's some of the formulas right. that are used, including by HUD for a loan mod could potentially raise, raise the interest rate over what it is now. So I, I am going to talk about that in a little bit, but that is one reason to consider all options for people. It's true. Um, you know, earlier I, um, I, I, I gave some shade to CFPB because I don't think that they, 
um, are doing enough to regulate mortgage servicers um, uh, and, and requiring mortgage servicers be more proactive in um, extending uh, forbearance and uh, in, 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 um, in telling uh, homeowners about the availability of forbearance programs. Um, however, uh, again, this is like a credit where credit is due kind of slide because they, they do have really helpful information on forbearances for clients. It's at that link below. It's in language which um, it, it can be understood by a broad audience. It's not you know, just written for lawyers or legal advocates. Um, uh, and you can view their little um, uh, video and information there. Um, and again, a reminder that I will send this around to the uh, listserv on Monday morning. Um, new defenses to foreclosure. Uh, so new times um, potentially offer new um, defenses and uh, I will turn it over to Rachel. Okay, yeah. So new defenses to foreclosure may be overpromising, but I do think that it's, it is a time when we can look at all of our existing defenses and how they might apply <laughs> to the new facts of the current crisis. Um, so we're, we're gonna cover, here is where we are gonna cover HEMAP. Um, and when that may be appropriate for our clients. Also how the equitable defenses that we've been using to foreclosures can be used um, for COVID related scenarios. And then um, chapter 13 bankruptcy, it, there are ways in which um, we can take advantage of new possibilities for clients who may already be in chapter 13s and also when a new chapter 13 could be the right solution for our clients. And then we're gonna end to talk about kind of what, what to do about the situation where um, clients aren't going to be able to resolve, um, they aren't, aren't gonna be able to come out of this with an affordable payment and um, some ideas for that. So to start with HEMAP, um, I, it's funny that Eileen referred to it as good old HEMAP. That's how I think about it too. I always think of HEMAP as the forgotten solution, the one where you're sitting there thinking, what can we do? And then you think, oh yeah, HEMAP. And then maybe that is right for your client. And you think, why didn't I think of this sooner? Um, in the exciting days of HAMP, HEMAP usually seemed less advantageous because it didn't lower the interest rate. So back when we had a lot more clients with the predatory loans, I hated to use HEMAP because I thought, What's the point of catching up on a loan with a 10% interest rate? It just didn't feel good. Um, and it didn't, it didn't change a predatory loan into something better. But now we have so many people who got loan mods in the previous crisis who already had, who had HAMP when it was available or, or one of the other um, loan mod solutions. And, and it, HEMAP doesn't look so bad. If you, if you wanna keep the terms that you had and you wanna just catch up, um, HEMAP could be the solution. Also, HEMAP was created in the early 1980s for a situation just, well, not just like this, because we've never had anything just like this, but somewhat similar. Um, it was created for a time of mass unemployment that was caused by economic events outside of people's individual control. Um, so, and for those of you who don't know, and I, I think this is gonna be covered in the foreclosure basics too, but HEMAP is a solution where, um, you can get a, a, essentially a loan from the state to catch you up on your mortgage if you fell behind in the loan through no fault of your own and are likely to be able to resume making regular um, payments. So this should apply to many people affected by COVID because this is a situation that was no fault of our own. 
Um, so everyone who lost income in the pandemic, anyone who saw their expenses increase because of um, helping family members, um, additional expenses from everyone being home, any of that, um, are that, that, those are circumstances that happen through no fault of their own. The part that I have more of a mental block about is are likely to be able to resume making regular payments because I don't know about the rest of you, but it's just so hard to look into the future. Um, it gives me like, an existential crisis or something every time I try and think about it. But I don't think that's the way PHFA is looking at it. That's not the way the regs are written. They're not looking at the news saying, you know, 40% of, of restaurants are never going to reopen or all of that. It's, um, it's really like, did your person, was your person bringing in income before they had this, whatever happened to them because of COVID? And do they still have that ability? Like, if they're not permanently disabled or retired, or you know, if somebody didn't die whose income they were relying on, then you can make the pitch that when things shake out, they're gonna be able to resume making payments if they were making them before. Um, two things to keep in mind about HEMAP that are often um, forgotten is that there's continuing and non-continuing HEMAP. Continuing HEMAP is the situation where the PHFA actually supplements the mortgage payments um, from forward from the point where the client is approved, potentially up until the maximum amount of assistance, which is normally 24 months or a max of 60,000, whichever is less. Um, continuing HEMAP is sort of like one of the, it's uh, like the unicorn or Bigfoot or whatever, like people have heard of it, but not seen it. I have a couple of times had clients get it. And I think it is going to be appropriate um, in this current crisis even more than before because um, we don't know how long this is going to go on. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that the longer period has been triggered now. So instead of 24 months, we are now in a period where because of the high unemployment rate, HEMAP can cover up to 36 months or um, if it's less than $60,000. And um, also when you make that pitch that person's likely to be able to resume making payments, that's a the 36 month um, time period for that. I see that John um, put in the chat, PHFA is still requiring face-to-face -face meetings. I actually was really curious about this myself and I don't have the answer. Does anybody else know what is happening with that? Because I know a lot of our um, partners at the housing counseling agencies in Philly are not, are working remotely and could have sworn I had a client where she did a HEMAP application where the housing counselor like mailed the stuff to her or dropped it off at her house and was going to pick it up. Does anyone know how this is working? And John, can, can you say, how, how did you hear about this, that PHFA is um, requiring face-to-face? -face? So we work closely with some of our local neighboring uh, organizations and uh -huh. I always try to get them to get a HEMAP if it's possible. And right now they're not doing them because they are working remotely. Not every organization. There's a couple that I'm thinking, you know, I'm not trying to call anybody out, mm -hmm. um, but they're working remotely. So they're not doing face-to-face. -face. So HEMAP in a couple counties is not an option for us. Hmm. Oh, that's um, a problem. <laughs> yeah, I'll, get, I'll get clarity about that because PHFA funds some of the housing counseling agencies in Philadelphia. And um, I had heard that PHFA had allowed the housing counseling agencies to do it, to have these meetings remotely, not for HEMAP, but just in general. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll follow up with PHFA um, to try to find that out because they should be 
they should be flexible in uh, these hmm. email applications. They should be because their they their website still says they are working all remotely, and I think they right. are. So if they can <laughs> if they can do it all remotely, we should our housing counselors should be able to. Yeah. Um, and to Eileen's question, it sounds like, it, well, that's like a little slightly different than what John was saying, but so John, you're saying some of the housing counseling agencies just won't do them at all because they think they need that face-to-face -face and they can't do it. Right. So it's been my understanding that they, uh, they're under the impression that the PHFA will not move on the face-to-face -face issue. And because they're not working, you know, because they're not in the office and they can't meet with people there's no way that they're able to submit an application. Okay. Well, I hate to hear that. I mean, I hate to think that there are people out there who could be getting HEMAP or applying for it where they're not even going through. So we definitely want to, we'll definitely follow up on that. Yeah. Um, I can, um, I can email the, 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 uh, the, uh, the head of HEMAP is this really um, helpful woman named Lori Toy. Um, I'll get some confirmation from her. John, what counties are, is that? Sorry, heard? at least Lackawanna, and I'm okay. not sure what Luzerne is doing, but this is where I was. Okay. And I'm not trying to call this any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotcha. Um, maybe I won't mention Lackawanna. I'll just ask <laughs> in general for her. Okay, to... thank you. Um, yeah. Um, so just kind of to tie things up for HEMAP, I, I agree that it should be something that you consider for anyone who's who – for whom it could be a solution. And just to flag again, like that FHA loans are not, unfortunately not eligible for HEMAP, but hopefully, hopefully FHA borrowers are, are getting good um, solutions such as HAMP, FHA HAMP, um, if they can't get all the payments put to the back of the loan. Um, okay, so Mike, I'm seeing your- Oh, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, all right, so this, this is where we can get into how, how you would actually basically answer a foreclosure complaint, how you can meet a foreclosure complaint that is, has either been frozen in time and like reawakens after the, um, the courts are moving again on foreclosures or that's filed after the uh, filed after things reopen. Um, so one of my favorite defenses in normal times to a foreclosure is the Act 6 notice defense. And this is where um, you, you basically say that the pre-foreclosure notice that was sent by the mortgage company is deficient because it doesn't adequately identify the default or, um, yeah, it doesn't adequately identify the default or it's requiring payment of things that shouldn't be required in order to reinstate. Um, and one of the ways that we've been attacking notices for years is to say that it's stale. Um, and I think that that could be true for any lender that just, that tries to file a new foreclosure based on an old notice, a notice that was sent prior to Governor Wolf's orders. Um, we don't have any case law that's exactly on point here, but we have some case law that's helpful for making that argument. And the most recent case um, on this point is from just last year, um, this J.P. Morgan Chase Bank versus Taggart. And the issue in that case was um, the lender had sent an Act 6 notice then filed a foreclosure, then dismissed that foreclosure and filed a new foreclosure. Um, and they argued that they were, didn't have to send a new notice. But um, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court disagreed and said basically any new foreclosure action requires a new foreclosure notice. 
Um, and even though those facts are a little different from the situation where a lender sends a notice, say, in, um, in January or February of 2020 and then wants to file a foreclosure in January of 2021, there's helpful language in that case talking about the purpose of the notice is to give people fair warning that the foreclosure is going to be filed and an opportunity to avoid it. And it also is supposed to give them information that can help them <laughs> avoid it. And um, for example, if the lender has changed um, or the servicer in between the time the notice is sent and the foreclosure is filed, um, if the default date has moved, so if the person made any payments in between, I always argue that the notice is not really effective anymore if the default date has moved or the, um, oh, sorry, my ridiculous phone system, I'll just try to ignore it. Um, or if or if it's just been too long that you can't figure it out from the notice what you would need to do um, to change it. So or just not to change it, but to avert foreclosure. So I would use an Act 6 notice for any new foreclosure that doesn't have a new notice. Um, and I would also put an Act 6 defense in for any, any new notice that includes any amount that you think is dubious. So if they have fees in there, they shouldn't have been charging during the pandemic or during a period of forbearance. I think that's a flaw that you could attack in the next six defense um, or, or any, anything else. I mean, scrutinize them carefully and consider the X6 notes, but definitely if it's old, I would raise it. Um, another defense I like to use is unclean hands. And I think that could come up a lot when you're dealing with lenders that, um, didn't, that misbehaved <laughs> during the pandemic. So in general, unclean hands applies. Um, and of course the servicers, mortgage companies and I would disagree on this on when it applies, but I have a very broad thinking on it, which is that anytime the mortgage company does something that kind of leads or leads a person into foreclosure or exacerbates a little problem and turns it into a bigger problem, I think you can use um, the unclean hands defense. If they do anything that prevents the homeowner from resolving their delinquency when they should have been able to, and instead they end up in foreclosure, you can use this defense. So I think in terms of um, COVID related stuff, any lender where they should have given the person a forbearance, um, but they didn't, you could use this. Um, anyone that should have given a homeowner a loan mod, but didn't, anyone who where they um, required repayment of every of, of the entire thing as a lump sum at the end. To me, that would like precipitate foreclosure and be a great um, situation to use unclean hands defense. Um, and I actually, I want to address Eileen's question. I do yeah. see it here. Um, so Eileen's asking if I raise Act 6 defenses as preliminary objections or as new matter. Um, I, I do not raise them in preliminary objections for the reason that A, it's more work because I have to write a brief. B, um, our courts have pressure, basically don't grant preliminary objections very often. So I feel like I'm likely to not get them granted. And then that might undercut my ability to use it later on as a, as a defense. Because even if, and I've had to make that argument, I took over a case once where the previous lawyer had done it in preliminary objections that have been overruled. And then they tried to use that against me at trial. So I don't, I, I don't know if other people have different approaches. There is at least one uh, trial court opinion I, I remember seeing in which 
um, uh, the trial court judge said this should have been raised as uh, in preliminary objections and because you didn't raise it, you can't raise it now. Um, well, that's, yeah, that is a concern. I, yeah, hmm. but I, I agree with Eileen and, and Rachel uh, that this is a, this is a, um, you know, might as well raise it as new matter, especially if you're trying to buy the client some time. Um, and to the question about opinion, oh, so pleadings, yes, I can definitely share pleadings. We don't have an opinion on the stale issue directly, but I'm still hoping we're going to get one because we keep raising it. The problem is we keep settling the cases. Um, but I do have one, actually, I do have one that's scheduled for trial where we don't have a great, I'm not naming any names here, but we don't have a clear path to resolving it before trial. So this may be tested <laughs> very soon. How um, old is the Act 6 notice in that case? It was... It was like years. It was, I forget if it was two or three years old ah. and they had changed servicers and accepted payments in between. So it had all the factors. It was like too old, wrong servicer, wrong default date. I feel like it's actually pretty good. It's probably our best defense in that case. So, um, so if I do get any kind of opinion on it I will, or decision, I will circulate it. Yeah. If anyone else does, please do the same. Yeah, um, and, it, and it doesn't seem much much of a stretch to go from the Taggart opinion, which um, Rachel talked about, which says that um, if you send out Act 6, file a foreclosure, foreclosure is discontinued, before you file a new foreclosure, you have to send a new Act 6. It doesn't seem much of a stretch to go from Taggart to the situation where you send an Act 6 notice, you wait three years, and then you file the foreclosure. Um, so I, th I think there's some some room there to to continue to make those arguments. Um, uh, Kathy has something. Um, uh, Kathy, can you unmute and talk a little bit about what what you found? Um, really, nothing more than that. But just a few minutes ago, I emailed a local housing counselor in Allegheny County, and he said that PHFA actually um, sent an email around to all the agencies telling them that the meetings were still supposed to be face-to-face. -face. He said he's understood that some agencies asked for an exception to that and some are just um, doing it remotely anyway and submitting them. Yeah. Um, thanks for that um, intel. And I'll, we'll, we'll see if we can get even you know, more, get a copy of that email or, or find out more information. I think at a minimum, um, the face-to-face -face HEMAP applications should be able to be done via Zoom or other video conferencing. Um, yeah. Um, uh, and then we're going to get it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Equitable servicing defense. These are um, also some of my old favorites. Um, mostly I've mm -hmm. used in the FHA servicing, um, FHA loan context. But um, essentially, we have this great pair of decisions from the 1980s from the Superior Court um, explaining that you can, it is a defense, it is an equitable defense to foreclosure in Pennsylvania that a lender did not follow the rules, follow the guidelines for loss of mitigation for um, FHA and VA loans. And the first one, Fleet Real Estate Funding Corporation versus Smith, the trial court had granted summary judgment and the Superior Court actually reversed it, saying that they do need to follow um, the rules. Now we use this before before filing foreclosure um, and before taking a judgment. And so <clears throat> whenever I've traditionally used these defenses, whenever a lender on an FHA loan, like didn't review 
person um, properly didn't give them a forbearance they should have gotten for unemployment or didn't review or give them a, an FHA HAMP modification they should have gotten. <clears throat> but, and we, we see very few VA loans here. So I don't know if um, some of you have used these in the VA context, so you definitely can based on the COPS decision. Uh, and it's been a pretty good defense. Also, there, one of the requirements for FHA loans was speaking of face-to-face -face meetings is that the lender is supposed to offer um, and make efforts to have a face-to-face -face meeting with the borrower before filing foreclosure if they're within a certain radius, have an office within 300 miles. Um, and they rarely did this. So that was a nice little hook that it was even in the regulations. Um, <clears throat> And these, these have been effective defenses. I think these are really great defenses for COVID because all the government-backed um, mortgages have really clear guidance. Um, the CARES Act, is, both in the CARES Act and in the guidance put out individually by HUD, the VA, Fannie and Freddie, saying what lenders are supposed to do with their borrowers, um, both in, for forbearances and for loan modifications. And they've all come up with specific solutions um, for what happens at the back end as well. And there's specific guidance about reaching out to borrowers before the forbearance runs out, you know, at least 30 days before the end of the forbearance, for example, to offer to review people for a loan modification. Um, for Fannie and Freddie, there's even, it's very detailed on, well, if you can't reach the person and you can't review them for this, then you can still offer them that, which may be a flex mod. Um, interestingly, and I, I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I have not used, I've not tried equitable servicing defense for Fannie and Freddie loans because the situation there is a little different. Um, it's not written into the mortgage document that they, that the lender has is restricted in their ability to file foreclosures based on regulations of the secretary, for example, as it is in the FHA um, loan. And those rules are not don't have the same force of law as the Fannie and Freddie ones as FHA servicing rules because those are actually in this CFR, the FHA ones. But um, when in thinking about it for this presentation, I thought now I would, I think I would maybe give it a shot um, for a Fannie and Freddie loan, as long as you can explain to the court how you know, you know, that you did the loan lookup and you know this is a Fannie or Freddie loan. Um, just because the guidance is so explicit here and the, the reasoning behind why the government-sponsored um, enterprises offered this, um, you know, or mandated the, these solutions is so clear in the context of COVID, I would give it a shot for um, a Fannie or Freddie loan as well. I don't know what the rest of you, if anyone has thoughts about that, feel free to put it in the chat or unmute yourself. Um, and I'll certainly update you on if how it goes if I try it. <laughs> um, is that it for? Yeah, I think that's all I have for this defense. Um, oh, and Eileen, speaking of, so while we're on subject of FHA, um, yes, it's true. The face-to-face -face requirement for FHA, um, for servicers of FHA loans prior to filing foreclosure has has been waived and um, that it was kind of infuriating. It was like, that was the first thing that they um, did, that it had did in response to the crisis or like <laughs> before they even made the, um, their 
the moratorium and the and solutions for people. Yeah, it was obnoxious. Um, but now people are covered by so so for FHA loans, yes, they don't aren't required to have that face to face meeting, but they also aren't allowed to file foreclosure right now. It'll be interesting to see once the um, moratorium for foreclosures on FHA loans is lifted, if they still try to waive, um, try to keep the face-to-face -face meeting requirement waived, they're going to look like big hypocrites um, at that point. And so we maybe I'm sure there would be some advocacy around that, but I don't know what's going to happen with that. Good point. Um, bankruptcy? Yeah. And I think just at time check, we're at nine more minutes. Oh my gosh, time flew. Okay. Sorry about that. I love talking about servicing defenses. Okay, so really quickly, because I am not an expert on bankruptcy, and I know that some of you are, I dabble in it. I have a couple of bankruptcies going right now. Um, there is a provision of the CARES Act that allows borrowers who had a plan that was already confirmed to extend it, the plan so that instead of a maximum of five years, it can, um, it can be up to seven years. So for anyone who was in a bankruptcy and then had trouble making payments, um, their trustee payments because of COVID and they're filing an amended plan, you, you can extend it. And there's, you can look at the CARES Act for detail on that. And I believe the trustees websites also have some more detail on that and, and maybe even a, um, a model plan for that. And then just considering new chapter 13 bankruptcies, it really may make sense for people. Um, I would say for people who can resume making regular payments, probably HEMAP, it would be worth giving HEMAP a shot because it's less expensive than bankruptcy, but for some reason they can't get HEMAP um, and they're ineligible for a loan modification or don't want to change the terms of their loan. It's worth considering uh, chapter 13 for them. And then sometimes you just get forced into a 13 for other reasons because a lot of our clients, if they had trouble making mortgage payments during COVID may have had trouble making other payments as well. And I know the utilities are starting to lift their um, moratoria. So if you have someone who needs to file, you may have someone who needs to file bankruptcy just to keep their um, electricity on or to deal with the utility debt. So that is, that's all I have on bankruptcy. Um, this is Kelly. If I could just interrupt for a moment, I'm going to launch the second of the CLE poll boxes. Attorneys, please respond. You'll have a minute and a half to do so. And Michael and Rachel, please feel free to continue. Thank you. Sure. Um, I think we've got one more slide. Yeah. Um, and this is, I think, a situation, I mean, uh, Rachel, I'll, I'll sort of take it if, you, if that's okay. The, um, uh, this is a situation that Rachel and I were talking about earlier, which is that there'll be some some families who, you know, if you, if you read the, the news, um, there's a lot of the people who lost their jobs um, from COVID the fact is, is their NAP jobs are just not coming back, that these are going to be permanent job losses. And so what happens for people who are not just suffering from episodic um, uh, drops in income, um, but their jobs, it, it may, you know, be a longer term unemployment. Um, uh, certainly, uh, loan modifications may be an option to lower the payments by stretching the loan off um, over 40 years. Um, uh, and if somebody does have some income to resume making their mortgage payments for seniors, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a rare case, I think, that I would ever 
it's a very rare case that I would ever recommend a reverse mortgage. Um, but you know, in, when all other options are gone, um, it's possible for seniors to get a reverse mortgage to pay off um, if the forward mortgage as a you know, last resort where there is some equity, uh, where there's a um, uh, in in the house, um, and the and the homeowner is is uh, is elderly. Um, but if it comes to the point where a homeowner must sell their homes, and I think that we will be facing this um, this you know during this time, um, uh, I think we want to caution people that they should hire a real estate agent who can help them get the highest price for their home and beware, beware, beware these predatory home buyers or residential property wholesalers or we buy houses people um, who uh, may offer fast cash, um, but the fast cash comes at a far less than fair market value for their homes. Um, so I think that's it. Um, uh, <laughs> Here's our email once again. Um, Eileen uh, posted in the chat. Um, uh, maybe when I circulate on Monday, I'll add the last slide, um, uh, which shows the, the 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 little fish eating the big fish, eating the big shark. Um, saved the uh, the cute hammerhead for the very end. Um, there. Uh, does anyone have any questions? Let me wrap this up. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you this morning. Hope folks have a good weekend. Rachel LaBush, any final comments? No. Cool. Great. Well, thank you, Rachel. I always love doing presentations with you and, and talking with um, about these issues. And uh, you have our, our email addresses. You can, have, of course, also please feel free to post questions um, in the Plan HCR uh, listserv, the Google group, um, and that way you can get um, uh, feedback, not just from me and Rachel, but from um, uh, Eileen and Kathy uh, and John and Trevor and Brandon and Jillian and everybody who um, uh, posted today in the chat. Um, have a Terrific uh, weekend, and we will talk soon. All right. And Beth, Thank I should you. say. Yeah, Thanks, care. Michael and Rachel, for being with us. Rachel, I just want to apologize for the last name mix up. <laughs> I can only claim Zoom fatigue. As no problem. Kelly, I do it all the time. I do it. <laughs> Imagine working with five Rachels. <laughs> the funny thing is, Mike, Michael was the number one name. Like, we're basically going right. for domination. We have the two most common names <laughs> at CLS now. All right. Well, thank you both for your time and the information you've shared. Thanks, everyone, and have a great weekend. Great. Take care, y'all. Take care.